Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amka na Unai. It is 800 hours Central African time. Good morning. Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa as we're giving news from an African perspective coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. It's on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band in far west Africa. It's 802 on the DSCV audible K. Now that's all across the African continent. I am Spumelele Zondi in Folulu Gabu with Jola Netulo, Amanda Machaka and Figile Lingwati. Your top stories. The fate of South Africa's president is now in the hands of the new ANC NEC. Ghana's Immigration Services has issued a controversial list of physical attributes. Physical attributes. Congo's opposition rally rejects plans for new dialogue after the country failed to hold its 2017 elections. In economics, Uganda's, uh, Ugandans see Bitcoin as a way to get rich quick. And in sports, South African Sevens Academy team players to join the Blitz box. Here's Jola Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good morning. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has ordered the country's police chief to relocate from the capital Abuja to Benue State to deal with violence there. The BBC's Stephanie Hagati has more. Outbreaks of violence have been happening around Nigeria's central region, but fighting has been particularly heavy in Benue State, where 80 people have been killed and 80,000 displaced. Regular deadly clashes between the mostly Muslim Fulani herdsmen and Christian farmers have been happening in the region for some time, but they escalated around the new year. While these tit-for-tat clashes often begin over land, the crisis seems to be taking on an ethnic and religious dimension. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has announced the appointment of a Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. Zuma says allegations that the state has been wrestled out of the hands of its real owners. The people of South Africa are of paramount importance and are deserving of finality and certainty. It will be headed by Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, as, re- as recommended by Chief Justice Mokweng Mokweng. This follows the North Gauteng High Court judgment that the findings of former public protector Tulima Dontela in her State of Capture report were binding. Zuma says the matter cannot wait any longer. There have been gunshots and heavy weapons fire in Ivory Coast, second biggest city, Boaki. The clashes broke out around military bases and involved rival army factions. The city uh, was the epicenter of a series of mutinies last year over the issues of salaries and promotions. The BBC's Charles Haviland reports. The firing in Boaki has gone on for hours. Local residents and journalists say uniformed men have been shooting in the air and blocking streets. There are also reports of electricity cuts in some areas. The disgruntled soldiers appear to be former rebels from the Civil War, now absorbed in the army but unhappy at their pay. Buake in central Ivory Coast is their home turf. They are resentful at the presence there of an elite army unit called the CCDO and one officer says they have now physically attacked its Buake headquarters. Clashes last Friday led to the death of a sergeant. 
The United Nations peacekeeping chief Jean-Pierre Lacroix has condemned the Democratic Republic of Congo's security forces for violently cracking down on protesters. Lacroix has also ordered authorities to prosecute those responsible. At least five people were killed during clashes in December when police burst into churches firing tear gas and shooting bullets in the air to break up protests in the capital Kinshasa and in the central city of Kananga, according to UN figures. The demonstrations took place on the first anniversary of political of a political deal brokered by the Catholic Church that was to pave the way for elections in 2017 and the end of President Joseph Kabila's rule. The elections were pushed back to December 2018 after the government cited delays in preparing the nationwide polls. And finally, a U.S. judge has temporarily blocked President Donald Trump's decision to end a program protecting young immigrants from deportation. On Tuesday, Trump told key lawmakers that he would sign whatever legislation they agreed upon to protect hundreds of thousands of young immigrants from being deported and to improve security along the country's border with Mexico. However, Trump says he still believes a wall should be built along at least part of the 3,200-kilometer U.S.-Mexico border. For Channel Africa... I'm Jolani Tulo. Eight oh five Central African time right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Now the fate of South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is expected to be high on the ANC National Executive Committee meeting which convenes today. This is the first NEC since the party's election of President Cyril Ramaphosa as its new president at NASRAC in December last year. While the meeting will discuss this weekend's January 8th statement to be delivered by Ramaphosa it must also deliberate on whether having two presidents, one at Lutuli House and the other at the Union Buildings, is a viable option for the party. This as President Zuma continues to face pressure to step aside. Balese Banyone has this one. As the ANC meets to look at the January 8th statement that will be presented by its newly elected president, Cyril Ramaphosa, the future of the current head of state, President Jacob Zuma, is expected to come under the spotlight. Zuma, who is serving his last term in government, has come under pressure for some time to step down from a number of quarters. With the new president now, the balance of power within the party has shifted, but it's not clear in whose favor. SABC has reliably learned that some some new NEC members will argue that the existence of two centers of power, one at Lutuli House and the other at the Union Buildings, plus the image of President Jacob Zuma, will make it difficult for the party to regain its lost support. During one of the interviews with SABC a year ago, this is what President Jacob Zuma had to say on the two centers of power. The correct feeling has been, which I share, you, you, you can't say... Um, when you have a president of the ANC who is the president of the country, the president of the ANC must also, uh, <clears throat> these two must exist uh, parallel. Because if that is the case, you are creating a, a kind of uh, two centers of power that could, in a sense, compete in one form or the other. As you know, the ANC is a ruling party. Uh, its policies have got to be implemented by the government, you would actually be saying the president of the ANC must instruct uh, the president of uh, the country. 
and, and at times there may be things that are happening that as a president of the ANC feeling, look, is it the right or whatever? So we, we generally had an understanding that it would not be good to create two centres. And as the ANC prepares for what many say will be a tough national election in 2019, some believe President Zuma has become a liability for the party. It is not the first time the ANC finds itself in this predicament. In 2008, the former ANC president and the then state president, Tabombeki, was recalled after President Zuma took the reins of the party. Beki wasted no time in resigning as the president of the country. Fellow South Africans, I have no doubt that you are aware of the announcement made yesterday by the National Executive Committee of the ANC with regard to the position of the President of the Republic. Accordingly, I would like to take this opportunity to inform the nation that today I handed a letter to the Speaker of the National Assembly, the Honorable Balegambete, to tender my resignation from the high position of President of the Republic of South Africa effective from the day that will be determined by the National Assembly. After Mbeki's recall, President Zuma was at pains to explain this decision. After careful debate and discussion, the NEC decided to recall Comrade Tabo Mbeki. This was one of the most difficult decisions the NEC has ever had to take in the history of the ANC. We fully understand that the decision comes with a degree of pain to Comrade Mbegi, his family, friends, members of the ANC, ordinary South Africans, and members of the international community with whom we interact. The ANC once more has to grapple with the future of its former president. Those who support him, like the MKMVA, have warned in recalling President Jacob Zuma may further divide the party. Many believe the recall of Zuma will assist the ANC to undo the damage that he has caused to the ANC, which led to the party losing three key metro municipalities during the local government elections in 2016. Ambali Sibanyoni in East London. Now, South Africa's former public protector, Tulima Donzela, has welcomed the appointment of the Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo as head of the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. President Jacob Zuma announced uh, last night that he will be appointing the Commission, citing the urgency of the matter. Zuma says any further delay into the matter will make the public doubt government's determination to dismantle all forms of corruption. The Commission must seek to uncover not just the conduct of some, but of all those who may have rendered our state or parts thereof vulnerable to control by forces other than the public for which government is elected. There should be no area of corruption and culprit that should be spared 
the extent of this commission of inquiry. I am also mindful of the concerns raised by the public protector in her report wherein she lamented the lack of resources to conduct a wider inquiry into this matter. Accordingly, by making more resources available, it is my sincere hope that the Commission will be able to reach many of those areas of concern that may not have been reached by the public protector's investigation, but form part of what she might have investigated had she had sufficient resources to do so. I have considered this matter very carefully, including the unprecedented legal implications of the order directing the Chief Justice to select a single judge to head the Commission of Inquiry. I have expressed my reservations about the legality of this directive, which may be the subject of the appeal. I would like to emphasize that I have faith in all the judges and their ability to execute their tasks with the requisite levels of fairness, impartiality, and independence. I requested the Chief Justice to provide me with the name of the judge to head the commission. He has selected Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Minyamezeli Mlungisi Zondo to undertake this task. I urge everyone to cooperate with the Commission of Inquiry. I trust that we will all respect the process and place no impediments to prevent the Commission from doing its work. I thank you. That's South African President Jacob Zuma. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 8.15 Central African time, now Ghana's Immigration Services has issued a controversial list of physical attributes which would disqualify job applicants from their current recruitment drive. Spokesperson Superintendent Michael Amamowako-Ata says people with a bleached skin or stretch marks will automatically be excluded because of their increased chance of bleeding in strenuous exercises. 
Some Ghanaians have condemned the list, describing it as sexist and unfair. Yesterday, SAFM PM live host Tepiso Makwetla spoke to news editor of the Daily Guide newspaper, Abdul Rahman Gomda. Can you confirm that the list that I've read, at least that of bleached skin and stretch marks, uh, does indeed fall into these new stringent laws? Exactly so, um the uh, head of public affairs, Superintendent Michael Amwakwata. That is what he told the media. And uh, a while ago, I spoke to him, and uh, he did explain why they have taken such uh, measures regarding uh, those with uh, blade schemes and uh, stretch marks. And what was his explanation? Well, the explanation was that uh, such persons uh, will not be able to undergo the kind of Strenuous paramilitary training uh, recruits will have to undergo before they pass out as immigration officers. Uh, he added that uh, when they sustain any cut, um, it could be very difficult to stop uh, the bleeding which would follow. And uh, that is the reason they do not want to uh, engage people with uh, marked uh, bleed schemes. Mm. What else is included in the list? They are looking at uh, a certain height. One should not fall below a certain height. And uh, they claim that uh, this is because it is um, a paramilitary establishment and they want to uh, get close to the uh, standard requirement for basic military training. Hmm. And what has been the reaction of Ghanaians to this? Just like um, you observed earlier, uh, some people find it uh, discriminatory, uh, especially the height aspect. According to them, um, the performance of uh, a soldier or an immigration officer doesn't depend on the height. Uh, But some people have also observed that uh, this is a colonial relic. Indeed, when the uh, British uh, set foot here and uh, the uh, recruited uh, uh, indigents of this part of the world into the Gold Coast constab- Constabulary. They insisted on a certain physique uh, so that when such people go to enforce the law, they will at least uh, be overwhelming, so overwhelming that uh, those they come to arrest will not resist arrest. Uh, so people think this is obsolete and uh, has to be changed because, after all, there are many short people who have found their way into these establishments and they are performing creditably well. That's news editor of the Daily Guide newspaper, Abdul Rahman Gomda, on the line with SAFM PM live host, Tepiso Makwetla. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition rally has rejected any idea of planning a new dialogue after the country failed to hold its elections in December 2017. The statement has come after several observers called on Congolese to sit and talk once more. But the rally believes that there is no need to continue discussing with a regime that wants to stay in power forever. Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. The opposition rally doesn't want to hear about any new discussion with the current regime since most of opponents believe President Joseph Kabila has no intention to leave the power. 
Both the opposition and the ruling coalition concluded an agreement on December 31st, 2016, setting presidential, national and provincial parliamentary elections to December 2017, but indeed this was not respected. And instead, this country's independent National Electoral Commission released an electoral calendar according to which elections are expected here this year on December 23rd, but really most of opponents here continue to reject such a calendar. Several observers have then called on Congolese to sit and discuss once more, but the opposition rally believes that there is no need to continue talking with a regime that wants to stay on power forever. Martin Fayulu is a rally senior executive. There will not be a third dialogue. We have signed an accord following the dialogue we had under the direction of the Catholic bishops. And we think that today there is no need for us to have any dialogue with Mr. Kabila. Mr. Kabila has demonstrated that he wants to stay in power forever. Mr. Kabila has demonstrated that he is the guy who is the bottleneck of the electoral process in Congo. And for us, he has to go. Mr. Kabila has imposed many constraints on the electoral calendar. And indeed, there are constraints on the electoral calendar the Electoral Commission released last November, including financial constraints among many others. But this doesn't mean nothing to the opposition rally, since it's just a way for President Joseph Kabila to try and justify his failure to organize elections in December this year, according to this rally senior executive Martin Fayulu, who believes that there is no more time to lose on dialogues. Those concerned are just justification to say to the people, we told you that uh, we gave you calendar, but we have 17 constraints. After that, we think that this number is not fulfilled, so we are not able to organize the election. Mr. Kabila, for us, he has to go, because we don't want to lose our time, to lose the time of Congolese by having dialogue and dialogue, and Mr. Kabila, at that time, is gaining some room to impose what he has in mind, because what he has in mind is one day to have a referendum. That's it there will not be a dialogue. Meanwhile, the political party of the Centre has described the idea of organizing a new dialogue here as a way to try and save what's still important for Congolese after the Democratic Republic of Congo has lost too much. But what's important according to this party's president is that the new dialogue shouldn't include current politicians since both the opposition and the ruling coalition have failed the previous ones. Jack Kichinja. Nothing is moving well. The opposition and the ruling coalition have failed and now new negotiations are needed by a new political class that would include even country people. This country is sick and the institutions are dead. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Let's go to Libya now where illegal smuggling networks which have imprisoned, tortured and abused thousands of migrants trying to cross to that country must be tracked and prosecuted according to Othman Belbasi who is the UN Migration Agency IOM's mission chief in that country. Shocking reports exposing a modern day slave trade and rampant migrant abuse in multiple detention centers last year have led to a major reassessment of the measures being 
taken to tackle smuggling along the central Mediterranean migration route through Libya. Mr. Belbasi spoke to UN Radio's Mustafa Al-Gamal. This voluntary humanitarian return program is a specific program to support migrants stranded in Libya and voluntarily willing to go back to their home countries. Those migrants, many of them do not have the funds to cover their ticket back home. So they approach IOM to help them go back home. Those migrants are of different categories. Some have been working in Libya for a long time and now they don't see any future or they lost their jobs because of the current situation. And others are new arrivals who were looking for opportunities in Libya but were misinformed about the situation and find themselves stranded. Another part of the migrants are those who tried their chances to take the boats to Europe and many of them, I would say, were not successful and some of them ended up in detention centers without any means and they thought that going back home to start a new life would be the best option. Just to confirm that this program is based on the request of the people and it's voluntary and follow a detailed registration process with the migrants. Some IOM reports talk about rampant migrant abuse in Libya. Could you... uh Talk to us some more about that. When we talk about migrant abuse, we know that uh, there is a number of smugglers, increasing number of smuggling networks all over the country. Once you are on the hand of a smuggler, you can imagine that migrants are subject to all types of abuse, especially that the majority of them are not even documented. And many, even when they cross the border towards Libya, there is no registration process. So even their families do not know whether they cross to Libya or they are in one of the neighboring countries. So they are totally under the mercy of the smugglers, and there has been reports about many cases of abuse and torture by the smugglers. Now, many international news outlets have been calling this modern-day slavery. Is that really what's happening in Libya? Would you call it that? When we talk about modern-day slavery, you know, when you hold people against their will in a certain location, and when people are traded for money between smugglers, and when you hold people for ransom, torture people sending photos to their families, asking the families to pay ransom. We believe that this is a major concern and those smuggling networks should be tracked and prosecuted. What are the demographic of this 181 migrants who were sent back to Lagos? The majority of the migrants in Libya are young males. A number of migrants have also some medical issues. So last year we returned 252 migrants with medical cases who were supported immediately with medical escort during the flight also reception and admission to hospitals upon return back home. When we talk about these vulnerable migrants uh, stranded in Libya, do you have a particular story that you, uh, you'd like to share with us? Many of the migrants, as, as I said, have been in Libya for a long time, sometimes 10 or 20 years. Because of the current situation, they had to leave their area of residence and lost their job. So the migrants themselves became displaced. And this is one of the main challenges for the migrants who stayed in Libya for long. They are used to the culture, they are known in their neighborhood, but unfortunately once they leave their area of residence, they become unknown in the new area and sometimes perceived as a threat. We hear a lot of stories about promises made by smugglers or by potential employers in Libya, and once you arrive, you are in the hands of the smugglers and you have no power. In addition, a common story now is becoming kidnapping migrants or holding them against their will, asking for ransom from the families. And this is becoming increasingly worrying practice because many people are subject to abuses and torture by the smugglers. And what is IOM looking to do in 2018 to help these migrants in Libya? The return program is only part of the work and addresses a specific and small number of migrants in the country. So if we talk about a country with more than 700,000 migrants, 
we are talking about the return of 20,000 during 2017, which means that the majority still work and live in Libya. So we will continue with our programs, mainly capacity building for all government officials dealing with migration, with a focus on the human rights, but also with a lot of focus on counter-trafficking. We plan to expand and establish new safe spaces to be able to hold vulnerable migrants outside detention. We have signed an agreement with UNICEF to strengthen the cooperation when it to migrant children and unaccompanied minors, and I believe this agreement will be of great added value of our coordination together between the two agencies for the best interest of minors and children. We plan also to continue our advocacy for the closure of detention centers and look more for alternatives to detention. On the other hand, we need to continue with the direct assistance and support to migrants inside detention centers as long as they exist. We are now establishing what we call migrant resource and response mechanism, which includes information sharing and providing immediate support to migrants along the migration route. IOM does in the country is what we call community stabilization, which is working with local communities, not only to promote peace, but to provide basic services, basic infrastructure, and to support the local communities, Libya, is a country that has always been dependent on migrants. Libya would require support in all the fields, especially to have the political agreement and security in place for the Libyans and for the migrants. You just heard from Othman Belbasi, who is the UN Migration Agency, IOM's mission chief in Libya, speaking to UN Radio's Mustafa Al-Kamal. Major water drilling companies have been mobilized and are expected to move into the city of Cape Town in South Africa as attempts to find more clean water intensify. The province is... Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. It is 8.30 Central African time. Joala Netulo is in studio. She has your headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Nigeria's President Bahamudu Buhari orders the country's police chief to relocate from the capital Abuja to Benu State to deal with violence there. There have been gunshots and heavy weapons fighting in Ivory Coast's second biggest city, Buakai. And finally, dozens of people are feared drowned after a boat carrying migrants sunk off the coast of Libya. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
It is 8.31 Central African time right here on Africa. Rise and shine on Channel Africa. Thank you very much, Olana, for that new, for those news headlines. You can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us tweets. We are on Channel Africa 1. Now, pressure is mounting at universities across South Africa as registration season gets underway. There are growing fears of upheavals following an announcement by opposition parties that the opposition party, rather the Economic Freedom Fighters Students Command, that it would lead a mass walk-in registration drive for eligible students at campuses. This despite the university's stance that they would not entertain any applications that are not done online. Several universities opened their doors for registrations yesterday, but no incidents have been reported. The uproar by the EFF follows the country's president, Jacob Zuma's surprise commitment last month to provide a free higher education for poor and working class students. While most universities have stood firm against walk-ins, the Val University of Technology, that is VUT, did allow walk-in applications. Here's a spokesperson at VUT, Mike Kuboni. I can confirm that the situation today, since yesterday, it, it ran smoothly, although we had uh, slight hiccups during the initial stages of the registration because of the technical glitches. But that was, has been sorted out. And after, immediately after that, the registration moved smoothly. We have uh, had quite a number of students who came into our, what you call, uh, to, to request for, for spaces at our university. But however, what we, 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 we did yesterday, because it was the first day on which we opened the registration, we, we registered all the, the FEM offers, those students that we have sent letters to confirm their um, application status. But separately to that, we had to deal with the people who just walked in who didn't apply. But what we did, rather than actually uh, to turn them away, we've just compiled a list where they can apply, uh, where, where, where they can appli- uh, they, they put an application so that whenever at the end of the registration, if we have still spaces available those students could be considered. Now, a very controversial decision that you've taken, considering uh, that uh, there was a, a sort of a united um, a decision for universities not to take walk-ins anymore uh, following um, some incidents, unfortunate incidents which took place. Why is it that uh, the university decided to allow walk-ins um, despite this? We don't actually take in the walk-ins, but... We cannot actually also at the same time turn them away because they've already arrived at the campus. As I said earlier on, we are dealing with the students who have confirmed registration status at the moment. But in the same time, when we receive students who are coming to request spaces who haven't applied, Rather than telling them, we put them on the, on, the, on the waiting list somewhere else. Well, I, I, I do yeah. think it's semantics because most other universities don't even give those people a chance to get on any waiting list, so to speak. So I think um, that, that's the decision that I was asking. Why is it that uh, your university thought to itself, you know what, we can't really turn these people away. Let's then compile a list of a waiting period for those. Should there be space, then you can slot them in. What is it that informed that decision? Because other universities are not doing it. 
In fact, um, even uh, the previous years, we have been dealing with such a similar situations where after the registration, we find that probably students whom we've offered a space does not come, we then refer the, uh, what call, consider the, what call the people who are on the waiting list. That has been done for, for many years, so it's not the first time that we are doing this at the, at, the, at, the, at the university. What I can confirm now is that currently, at the moment, we are not taking or entertaining any walk-ins. We are dealing with the students who have just confirmed registration status. Now, one of the main issues of debate at the moment in the higher education sector is, of mm. course, the announcement of plans to forge ahead with free tertiary education for people who otherwise cannot afford it. What have been some of the commitments that the Val University of Technology has undertaken so far in an effort to sort of um, assist with the implementation of this plan? And in your view, is it feasible? You, you see, we, 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 all the universities, as, as you can uh, probably uh, know, is that they, they support the idea of a free education. But the problem with, with this announcement is that it was made at a, a very short notice. Universities were not prepared enough in, in order to actually make sure that they take care of this, what you call, uh, this announcement. But however, being the case, the Minister of Education yesterday had a meeting with the Vice-Chancellors of all the 26 universities where they agreed that such students will have to be taken care of in terms of the financial assistance that will come from the NSFAS as well as government. So on those bases, we are just waiting for the government to see, to come to, to the table and see how we can actually those students be assisted. That's Val University of Technology spokesperson Mike Kuboni speaking to Zikona Miso. Now, the government of South Sudan has accused rebel leader Riyad Mashar's fighters of attacking a military barrack inside the capital, Chuba. Here's Shem Shumanyula. Security has been tightened in South Sudan's capital, Yuba, after an overnight attack on a military barracks there by fighters loyal to rebel leader Riyad Mashar. According to government military spokesman Brigadier General Koang Lul Ruai, Dozens of Machara fighters exchanged gunfire with the government troops before they were forced to flee. The attackers were repulsed. They are fleeing westwards. They are fleeing west of Juba, westward. They have been on the run. They are running towards Omduruba. And uh, Omduruba is about 80 miles from here. And as of 7 in the morning, we were notified that uh, a number of them had been killed. So they are still on the run up to now. People living near the military barracks in Juba that was attacked by Riek Machar fighters were terrified by the fighting that preceded the attack. One of them, Sophia Nyapuor, speaking in Arabic through an interpreter, had this to say. We are taken up by surprise with a lot of gunshots. We did not know what was happening. All our children got terrified, and just like war have returned again in Cuba, yet we are expecting peace this new year. It was not good. Everybody was scared. I did not run, but we were all sleeping inside with my children. We did not know, and nobody could explain what exactly happened. The gunshots were just behind us. The voice of Sophia Nyapwar, a resident of Yuba, she lives near a government military barracks that was attacked by rebel leader 
Riekma Charles Fighters. Meanwhile, Colonel Chang Garang Luwal, one of rebel leader Riekma Charles military field commanders, confirmed that indeed his fighters were responsible for the attack on a military barracks in Juba. Colonel Luwal, speaking on a poor telephone line from an undisclosed location inside South Sudan, says the rebels were forced to attack the government military barracks because the government was not ready to implement the ceasefire that was signed in 2015 and that the Juba authorities had failed to observe a ceasefire following the conclusion of round one of peace talks held in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa in December last year. Another round of talks to be mediated by the regional trade block IGAD is to take place in the next few weeks. No precise date has been set. Priding himself for the attack on a military barracks in Juba, Colonel Shan Garang Luwal said, and I quote, that attack demonstrates our ability and capability to fight and take control of Juba. But because we received orders from our commander-in-chief, we decided to comply, but we continued to experience an attack by the government forces with the intention to gain more positions in different parts of the country. You know, the government has been on the offensive, and so we cannot continue to fold our hands while we are being attacked. End of Colonel Chang Garang Luwal's quote. The rebel commander, Colonel Chang Garang Luwal, denied that rebel forces have lost any fighters in the attack. Many government soldiers, according to the colonel, have joined rebel forces. The attack on a government military barracks in Juba has forced the Juba administration to deploy more soldiers around the barracks. A restriction of movement in the western parts of the city to which the rebel fighters retreated has also been imposed. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It is 8.42 Central African time. Now... The vulnerable Rohingya children are living in appalling conditions, according to UNICEF. Inter-Korean talks have been welcomed by UN chief. Meanwhile, a peacekeeping chief urges Congo's leaders to honor election agreements. For more on the UN brief, United Nations' Matt Wells compiled this report. This is the news in brief from the United Nations. The inability of UN agencies to access vulnerable Rohingya children who remain in northern Myanmar is troubling, said the UN Children's Fund UNICEF on Tuesday. Describing her recent visit to Rakhine State, UNICEF spokesperson Marek Simakado said that around 60,000 Rohingya children remain almost forgotten, trapped in squalid camps in central Rakhine, while the eyes of the world are focused on the 655,000 who have fled across the border into Bangladesh. UNICEF and our partners still don't know what the true picture is of the children who remain in northern Rakhine because we don't have enough access. What we do know is troubling. Prior to August 25, we were treating 4,800 children suffering from severe acute malnutrition. These children are no longer receiving this life-saving treatment. She said UNICEF stood ready to work with the government of Myanmar and the state authorities of Rakhine to provide humanitarian relief to all children, regardless of ethnicity, religion or status. But to do so, unlimited access was essential. She gave a vivid description of two of the worst camps she'd visited in Porktau Township, which is reachable only by boat. The first thing that you notice when you reach the camps is the stomach-churning stench. Parts of the camp are literally cesspools. The shelters 
teeter on stilts above garbage and excrement. In one camp, the pond where people draw water from is separated by a low mud wall from the sewage. You can easily see how a little bit of rainfall would wash that filth over into the pond. Children walk barefoot through this muck. One camp manager reported four deaths among children ages 3 to 10 within the first 18 days of December. His only ask was for proper pathways so they wouldn't have to walk through their own waste. The UN Secretary General has welcomed the progress made during high-level inter-Korean talks on Tuesday, which include the decision by North Korea to send a delegation to the upcoming Winter Olympics. In a statement, Antonio Guterres said that the Games fostered an atmosphere of peace, tolerance and understanding that was particularly relevant on the Korean peninsula and beyond. After months of rising tension over the DPRK, or North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile program, the neighbouring nations agreed to hold cross-military talks and reopen a dormant military hotline. The UN peacekeeping chiefs urged political leaders in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, to stick to an agreed timetable for holding free, fair and credible elections. Jean-Pierre Lacroix was briefing Security Council members on Tuesday, focusing on the role of the UN stabilisation mission in the country, MINUSCO. Security forces killed at least seven people at the end of December who were protesting against President Joseph Kabila's refusal to step down from office. He had agreed to set a date for fresh elections by the end of the year as he's barred from running again with his official mandate ending in December 2016. DRC's election commission set a new date of the 23rd of December this year, but the opposition says it won't agree to such a long delay. Here's Mr Lacroix. It is imperative that the DRC's political leaders adhere to the constitution, the 31st December 2016 political agreement and the electoral calendar, which together provide the political and legal framework for for the holding of free, fair and credible elections, leading to a peaceful transition of power and the consolidation of the country's democratic institutions. Political brinkmanship and the refusal to compromise would only result in further delays and deepening of the political crisis. Matt Wells, United Nations. It is now time for your economics. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumalele. Good morning. South Africa's economy is expected to grow by just 1.1% in 2018, one of the lowest rates in sub-Saharan Africa, according to the World Bank. The bank published its annual global economic outlook on Tuesday evening, which includes predictions of global of gross domestic product growth around the globe. Of the 43 countries that make up sub-Saharan Africa, only the Equatorial Guinea and Zimbabwe were focused to have lower growth rates than South Africa in 2018. The World Bank said that sub-Saharan Africa's growth would likely average around 3.2% in 2018, about 0.1% higher than the world average of 3.1%. Growth was expected to be particularly strong in what the bank calls non-resource-intensive countries. Cote d'Ivoire is Focused to expand by 7.2% in 2018, Senegal by 6.9%, Ethiopia 8.2%, Tanzania 6.8%, and Kenya by 5.5% as inflation eases. Major oil exporters Nigeria and Angola, meanwhile, were focused to grow at 25 and 1.6% respectively in 2018. 
The Democratic Republic of Congo's finance ministry says Africa's top copper producer collected 489.2 million U.S. dollars in revenues from the mining sector in the first nine months of last year, up more than 9% over the same period in 2016. In a quarterly report, the ministry said revenues from the oil and gas sector rose nearly 71% over the same period. However, oil and gas revenues in the third quarter of the year fell 35% offsetting a strong second quarter. Nespers says it will consider structural options if the value gap with its stake in 10 cent holdings persists. Nespers, Africa's largest company by market value, has a 33% stake in Shenzhen, China-based internet giant 10 cent, valued at about 158 billion US dollars, while Nespers itself has a market value of about 112 billion US dollars. Nespers CEO Bob Van Dijk says the discount is too high and has been accelerating in the past 20 months. Naspers is considering using tools such as depository receipts to access new pools of capital that are otherwise restricted to trade on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. South African economist Dr. Azajamin says even if government provides free tertiary education for students from poorer communities, the question of the quality of the early childhood development education will come back and bite. The debate of free tertiary education in the Southern African nation has again reached fever pitch following last month's announcement by the country's President Jacob Zuma that government would from this year provide free higher education for poor and working class students. Jamin explains. The first thing you've got to be aware of is that it was not a call for free tertiary education for all students. It was a call for free tertiary education for students coming from poorer families earning below 350,000 rand a year. So that immediately meant that the scope of free tertiary education has been limited to poorer students and therefore the cost is that much less. And finally, for the first time in four years, new vehicle sales in South Africa recorded a year-on-year improvement in 2017, although at a modest 1.8% in volume terms. That's according to the National Association of Automobile Manufacturers of South Africa, NAMSA. The improvement was due to modest gains in new car and light commercial vehicle sales. NAMSA sees this as encouraging given subdued economic growth and pressure on consumers. In its view, the marginal decline in interest rates in July 2017 also also had a positive effect. Major contributory factors to the improved new car and light commercial vehicle sales were the continued strong contribution by the car rental sector, which accounted for an estimated 16% of new car sales during the year, as well as unprecedented sales incentives by manufacturers and importers, particularly during the second half of 2017. And now for a quick look at your financial indicators. The U.S. dollar is trading at 12.34 to the South African rand, 9.68 to the Botswana Pula, and 10.05 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 73 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,311 and platinum at $958 per ounce, while the price of print crude oil is at $69.20 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Thank you very much, Amanda. Figile is in studio now. He has your sports news.
We begin with rugby news. South African Sevens Academy coach Maria Skuman believes that a lot of his players will be knocking on the door of the Springbok Sevens site ahead of the Commonwealth Games and the Sevens Rugby World Cup this year. Skuman was speaking after his side won the Punta del Este tournament in Uruguay in the Super America Rugby Sevens Series. The Academy side travelled to Vina del Mar in Chile this week for the second installment of the Sudamerica Rugby Sevens Series where they will play against Brazil, Ireland and Paraguay in Pool A. It's, it's a big year for, for uh, Springbok Sevens with the Commonwealth Games and World Cup uh, coming on. So uh, the boys are going to be knocking on the door. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the winners is a bonus. Uh, our primary objective is always to give uh, the players uh, valuable game time. And, and we definitely achieved that. Um, uh, we had a great uh, day two. Uh, players got out of their comfort zones. And uh, they were truly tested in, in all areas of the game. So uh, as management, we are, are really very happy with, uh, with all the players. Schumann was particularly pleased with how his team fared, especially against international sides that are vying for places on the HSBC World Rugby Series and was also happy with the likes of young stars Angela Davids and Mula Duplessis, along with Shaq's fullback Rhino Smith, who participated for the first time for the academy side. We are obviously uh, very happy uh, for this win in uh, Punta del Est, um, especially taking consideration that uh, we played against uh, a lot of uh, international teams who's all fighting for a spot in the World Sevens uh, circuit. Um, and then also uh, we had a couple of youngsters here, uh, two players that just fin- finished grade 12 uh, four weeks ago, Angelo Davids and Milo Duplessis, and they did really well. Also, Rainer Smith, who joined us only three days ago. Um, it's great uh, a learning curve uh, and uh, uh, for those uh, three players and all the youngsters uh, in the academy. In cricket news, Kenya under-19 cricket team has lost to Canada by eight wickets on Tuesday in the first warm-up game for the World Cup in Christchurch, New Zealand. The young cricketers who had beaten Canada by three wickets on Saturday won the toss and elected to bet first, but were all out for a meager 164 runs. Our Kenyan correspondent, Francis Mutegi, reports. The young cricketers beat Canada by three wickets on Saturday, where they made a stopover on their way to New Zealand. Canada batted first and were all over for 208. Kenya chased to score 209 for 7. Earlier in the week, Kenya lost to local side Thunders by five wickets and by 30 runs in their two build-up matches. In the World Cup, Kenya is drawn in Group A alongside 2014 champion South Africa host New Zealand and defending champions West Indies. And finally, Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, says 42 Russians have lodged appeals against the bans issued by the International Olympic Committee following doping violations at the 2014 Sochi Winter Games. The athletes were among 43 disqualified from events banned from participating in future Olympics and in some cases stripped off their medals following the IOC's investigation of widespread doping in Sochi exposed by an independent report for the World Anti-Doping Agency. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, now.
855 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. The fate of South Africa's president is now in the hands of the new ANC-NEC. Ghana's Immigration Services has issued a controversial list of physical attributes uh, that uh, it wants higher people for, and that includes stretch marks. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine. From myself, Spomele Lezondi, producer, uh, producer Raymond Piri, and technical producer Wiseman Mangel and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for joining us. And you can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. We are also on plus 278233259.05. We leave you with Zahara's Mkoti. Bye-bye. Bye.